Baxi's musical podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Bax, and thank you so much for coming back to Baxi's musical podcast. You know, for some people, the best music in the world can only come from the United States or Great Britain. Maybe Canada, but that's it. There are 193 countries in the world, and yet the only music that's worth listening to only comes from three places. The other 190 countries, forget about it. Except on the other side of the earth, you have Australia. And if the only thing you know about Australian music were ACDC, the Bee Gees, and Olivia Newton-John, then you might be missing out on some of the most eclectic and fertile areas of the world for incredible music. Let me toss a couple names out for you. The Saints, Radio Birdman, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Midnight Oil, In Excess, Hunters and Collectors, and one of my personal favorites, the criminally underrated Hoodoo Gurus. This is a situation where if you know, you know. The Hoodoo Gurus were a band that were a college rock radio staple back in the mid-1980s. They were a band that released a string of singles that were every bit as infectious as some of the best power pop songs anywhere in the world. Songs like 1983's They Want You Back from their debut album Stone Age Romeos. Bittersweet from their 1984 album Mars Needs Guitars. Or one of their biggest hits, 1987's What's My Scene from their album Blow Your Cool. These were amazing songs from a stretch of incredibly great records. The Hoodoo Gurus wrote smart, lyrically interesting songs with incredible hooks. In fact, they're responsible for one of my favorite songs of all time, and we'll get to that during my interview with Dave Faulkner. The band has just released their first new album in 12 years, another great one entitled Chariot of the Gods. So as you can imagine, I am particularly excited to speak to guitarist, singer, and the primary songwriter of one of my favorite bands from Australia, Dave Faulkner from the Hoodoo Gurus on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, Dave, how are you? Good, thanks. Back to having my breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost thinking about going to bed. That's, that's the Yeah, yeah. So where are you again? You're in Massachusetts, right? In Massachusetts. What's the weather like today? Uh, well, we're kind of we're kind of flirting with some thunderstorms right now. So if if, if if everything goes blank, you know why. I'm at my sister's house. This is my sister's my bed, my spare bedroom. That's where I'm I'm hiding out from the, the dog. So <laughs> Hopefully they won't be barking to interrupt our interview as well. I got I have to tell you, I'm I am I'm so glad I got a chance to talk to you. I've I've been a big fan of Huda Gurus for a long, long time. And I'm sure you get this oh, cheers. I'm sure you get this constantly. Some middle aged idiot comes up to you, shows you a copy of Stone Age Romeo as like a desperate fanboy, and I and, and I'm sure that's gotta be a little embarrassing and and uh, whatever. Not so, at all. It's 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 heartening because okay. you know there's a lot of people that haven't heard of us. So, you know, we, we, we relish it when someone says, you know, they know what we're doing. Good. That's, that, you know, that's kind of why you're there, you know? <laughs> Good. So then you I hope that not, someone sees it and likes it. I'm sure that you won't want, mind it happening one more time. This is my 1984 copy right. of, of Stone Age Romeo. You, you got the Australian copy. So you want one of those people that sort that out? I did seek that out and, uh, and never had a, a moment of regret about buying this. If, if, if I didn't, literally play the living shit out of this record for the last 38 years it would <laughs> it would be worth 50 dollars on online on on ebay but uh, as of the, the condition that it's in these days it's probably worth probably no more than half that but <laughs> this, 
It's funny story about the cover. You, I guess you know what happened with the US label, right? Yeah. Uh, A&M. They thought the cover sucked, and so they did their own sort of 80s cover with sort of pastels and and uh, <laughs> and sort of like this sort of 80s colours with, you know, sort of pastel dinosaurs. And and then after the tour finished and we were signing so many of the Australian copies where people had done just as you did and bought, you know, imported the copy, because also the track order is different as well yeah. on the uh, on the US version. Uh, I think the mastering actually might be superior on the US version, by the way. Oh, you know, really? The actual audio- yeah, I think so. The cut is pretty damn good. But, um, yeah, these track orders are different. Anyway, so they came up to us at the end and they said, oh, well, we don't think uh, changing the cover affected the sales, <laughs> which is the obvious thing you say is, then why the fuck did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, that's a, that's, that's a pretty typical you know, record company reaction. Like, you know, you know, we made a mistake, but we're not going to admit that it happened. It's that's it. Something- that, ha- that happened to us many times. It's always your fault and never theirs. I mean, in our case, we had a, um, our third album. We had a single uh, that was a very big hit in Australia called What's My Scene? And the U.S. label uh, were, just thought that that's good for college only. You know, that's a, it, was a, it was a alternative radio, alternative rock track. And the song that they thought was going to break us wide open to the CHR, you know, playlist, commercial <laughs> high rotation, uh, you know, AM radio, was going to be a song called Good Times because it had the bangle singing backing vocals on it. Mm. And uh, they were a big hit at the time. Of course, they were friends of ours. That's why they were on it. But um, we were saying, look, don't, don't, this song is not really representative of us. You know, it's a, it's a bit of an outlier. And, and you know, people, if they, if they like this track, they may not like the other stuff, you know, because it doesn't sound, you know, there's nothing else like it. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> we, we kept saying, you know, this really should, you know, what's my scenes, the one, you know, it's got a great video and all these things. And they're saying, Guys, guys, please don't make us not have this hit we know we can have. You don't know our market. We do. And, of course, you know, we finally had to give in because it got to the point where we were they were so determined and, and so upset at us at not agreeing with them that they were going to kind of like pretty much just kind of, you know, put us at the bottom of the pile anyway, no matter what we did, if we hadn't agreed. So we went along with it. And, of course, the song didn't become the huge hit they thought it was going to be. And what's my scene was just kind of wasted and hadn't been promoted in any other way other than purely. Yeah. And, and of course it was like, well, those guys just weren't ready, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that, that kind of thing has, has happened all the time. And you know, I like for whatever reason, simple minds is popping into my head. I mean, here's a band that was, you know, doing their own thing and knew what they wanted to do. And it was the record company that said, no, 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 you're going to, you're going to record this song for a film soundtrack. And they hated it. And unfortunately, they were right, and the record company takes all the credit for making that decision. Well, but it, you know, I, I, that's a very famous case. I mean, but the funny thing is, I really like that song. It's a great, <laughs> you know, it's a great song. But it wasn't. I mean, you know, if you're simple minds, if you know, you're used to doing it, you know, your music one way, and yeah. you know, here's a here's a bona fide hit in your lap, and you yeah. hate doing it every single time. It's like the monkeys doing Valerie. <laughs> right. or, or the Bangles had a similar, you know, we mentioned the Bangles, but also the Bangles had the same experience when they did um, Eternal Flame. Because right. Susanna wrote that with, um, I forget, you know, a couple of, you know, famous songwriters, you know, who'd done the, I uh, forget the names, they were, you know, they're, they're on a lot of tracks, those people. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the rest of the band thought, no, it sounds like it could be a Whitney Houston album, not a Bangles album. And so they and they always hate them. I and I kind of like that song too. That's a funny thing. I think Eternal Flames a really nice song. And um, I sort of I explained. I, I spoke to Vicky about it years later, and I said, you know, think of it like your My Love by Paul McCartney and Wings. 
you know, that was a song that everyone's always put shit on, you know, for Paul. But I think it's a really good song. It's a, it's a you know, it's a sappy song, but it's really pretty, you know. Yeah. Why not? It's funny. Like, like Stone Age Romeo's in particular is like one of those go-to records that if I'm having a really lousy day, I can put that on the turntable or, you know, grab the CD version I have. And and and, and you can't possibly have a crappy day. Listen to that to that album. Oh, thank you. And 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 in particular, it's you know the song that I think is the best song on the album was not the big hit or the big single off that record. In my honest opinion, I was a kamikaze pilot is maybe uh, one of the greatest power pop songs ever written. I mean, I really, I oh, really truly believe that. Thanks. That was a fun song. And, and um, it still goes on. We, you know, we finish a lot of our shows with that song still, you know, I mean, you know, the set, you know, we might do other songs in the encore, but, but that's sort of like a bit of a set closer. It just works every time. And, it's and so the song fantastic. kind of portrays, it captures so much of what we love. You know, it's got elements of the, uh, the dolls, you know, Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers and, and, you know, just that other stuff too, you know, it's just, it, it just is kind of hits, presses those buttons that, you know, make me excited, excited about songs. Before we get into the new record and, and, and we will talk about that. I, I, I did my share of research getting ready for this, uh, this interview. Right. And I, uh, I got to ask you about the victims, right? Sure. <laughs> A band you were in at the age of 20, uh, I stumbled across the original version of uh, of television attic, which I I I had forgotten about. I didn't think I had heard it, uh, you know, back then. Tell me a little bit about that band, 1977 in Australia. Yeah. For some of us who were just experiencing punk for the very first time, how that arrived in Australia of all places to yeah. me, it just <laughs> how did that happen? I know. Was it in the pouch of a kangaroo popping by? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, they're, they're, well, I'm in Perth right now, which is a place where this, the victims formed. And, and uh, you know, we had our careers. I, I grew up in WA, Western Australia, which is one of the most remote places on Earth as far as certainly in, uh, you know, the Western world. Um, the nearest major city is probably uh, Jakarta. Mm. <laughs> you know, certainly, I mean, it's, close, it's closer to Bali than it is to Sydney. <laughs> where I live, you know, Perth. And there's a huge desert in between. It was an insurmountable, you know, uh, problem for people growing up in, in my city. And a lot of a lot of international tours wouldn't wouldn't come this far. It was a smaller outpost in a sense, you know, uh, not, a, not not the biggest city for a long time. It's still, it's still kind of smaller than most. Yeah, so we felt very marooned and isolated, you know, in our desert thing. On, you know, one side of the ocean, the next stop was Africa, you know, the Pacific, the... Uh, <laughs> The uh, Indian Ocean um, is on our on our board, right, you know, on our coast. And then, as I say, the other side's a desert, and you know, several thousand miles away, Sydney or Melbourne, which are the major cities in in Australia uh, as far as population goes. So anyway, um, because of that reason, you know, we were big music nuts, and you know, we we would sort of read the um, British music press, and also the and also the US stuff, like you know, Rock Scene was a magazine that was very influential. Lisa Robinson, and you know. Um, and you sort of read about bands like the Dolls. That was sort of like the, that sort of era, bit pre-punk. Um, so there's people reading those magazines, you know, Cream and Zig, uh, and then the US, you know, sorry, the UK papers like NME, Melody Maker, Sounds. Those were all kind of required reading for music buffs, you know. And and, and in Australia also, you know, because a lot of records wouldn't be released here on local release. So the cool stuff often you had to get it as an import. Right. And you have to wait you know, six weeks for the shipment to come from the UK or, or the US, you know, by, by, you know, by ship basically. And um, so it was for, for music fans, you really had to kind of seek out stuff to, that was interesting. Um, it wasn't just let there, you know, 
you could just, you couldn't discover it, you know, browsing through the racks that often. You could as you could as well. Obviously, the cool regular stores would get stuff in because they were doing the same thing. You know, they're checking out what's what's happening. That's not on a local release, and they're importing it. So we were reading about punk rock for a long time before it even had a record. We were reading about the CBGB scene um, back in 1976 or 75, even uh, I think end of 75 there was a mention of it. Uh, a dispatch from from um, a, a UK correspondent who who do a, a like a an update on what's happening in in the states, New York, and uh, he wrote about this scene, CBGBs, and this <laughs> band, the Ramones, who whose guitars sound like buzz saws, and we just thought this was incredible. What does this mean, you know? And they and then you know you hear, hear later they're singing about beating on brats with a baseball bat, and it's you know this really kind of like these punks, you know, and. And it was a, you know, and the term punk rock had been around for a while. I don't know if you knew that, knew this, you know, um, uh, what's his name, Meltzer, Richard Meltzer and people, and Lenny Kay. That term had been used, and we know from the um, Nuggets right. era. Yep. It was used, it, it was used to describe, to describe that sort of late 60s, mid 60s, you know, those garage bands that were influenced by the Yardbirds and the Stones and the, the Who, you know, and, 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 um, uh, the British Invasion bands, you know, but many of the Yardbirds, I think, they were so influential on that 60s punk scene in the US. And um, so so that term had been bandied around. Of course, Malcolm McLaren took it back to London and, you know, used it as a brand name for his, you know, thing and, you know, and for clothing and all those things. And he stole the fashion tips from Richard Hell, you know, with the safety pins and, you know, and, you know, Blank Generation, all that stuff. But um, so we're sort of seeing all that stuff, in, you know, in real time through these newspapers and then eventually able to buy the records and the first record that ever came out was actually um the live at cbgb's album and that was um right oh, besides of course patty smith's horses uh that was the first first real official release but um you know but of that cbgb scene the kind of all it was live at cbgb's a double album and, and it didn't sound like punk rock as we'd read about it you know because a lot of those bands are kind of just club bands you know that because blondie weren't on it you know i mean they had the Miami's, the shirts. So, you know, anyway, so we listened to that. We're trying to basically kind of trying to figure out how to match <laughs> what we're reading about to what we're hearing. And it's like, did, and we, and so that was when the band called the Cheap Nazis formed. And that was a band that I was in for about three rehearsals. <laughs> but it wasn't until we finally heard the Ramones album, you know, that in the end of 76, uh, that we, you know, actually in the beginning of 70, you know, middle of 76, that we kind of went, this is what we've been, they've been talking about. Now yeah. we understand. And Anakin UK came out in the end of 76. And, you know, um, and that was the, the, the hints of the British scene and the damned, of course, you know, with uh, with New Rose. And, you know, so we're buying all these singles and, you know, and we're kind of reading about it. And, you know, and we formed a band pretty much to be like that because the Ramones album was like our Magna Carta, <laughs> you know, and, you know, it was for yeah, everyone, really. It I mean, you know, Well, you know, and it's interesting because you, if you, I mean, you look at the timeline of everything, between you know what was going on in New York, what was going on in London, and what was going on in Australia, yeah, the Saints and Radio Birdman almost preceded totally. some of those uh, some of those bands. So if they, they were if they're getting they did the, they did if they're getting the information from from you know, the enemy of the melody maker, they did a pretty damn good job studying up on things. Oh yeah, well, Saints' first album is a masterpiece, you know, and, and Birdman are fantastic. Birdman, of course, you know, went back to the pre-punk. That's where they were influenced by you know by Blue Oyster Cult. Which they don't talk about so much, but but also of course you know the MC5 that's so much an influence on Radio Birdman, and then the Saints of course got it from the Stooges. Let's be honest, you know, and you know that's where the Ramones got it too, you know, and and you know this 
Ramones, you know, mixed the Stooges with the with the Beach Boys and and basically Rollers, and they got you know what you know that sound and T Rex as well. You know, everyone loved glam rock. That was, you know, just like all the English fans are all Bowie fans and Roxy Music fans before they became punk. You know, before they became uh, Pistols fans. You know, so there was a, there was something in the air already. You know, this sort of rebellious, you know, outrageous fashion sense, and also we're not the mainstream. We're doing something else. You know, and and. Yeah, that was kind of already there. And, and bands like Birdman and Saints, of course, they were tapping into that energy already. I wasn't. I was a bit younger than them, but only by a couple of years, but I was also a bit less well-educated. I, it took me another, you know, I didn't get into the Stooges and, and the MC5 until I started listening to punk and, you know, and realised this is a band that mattered to all the bands I loved. That's how I found it. You know, and also James Baker, he was a couple of years ahead of me and, and he was very much into that stuff, you know, and yeah. the Dolls was his favourite band of all time. And, you know, he he discuss, he went to the, uh, the US in 1976, end of 75, early 76, so he was there and he saw the Ramones, you know, you know, he went to New York, saw the Ramones, basically got his hair cut like Didi <laughs> straight away. I always thought it was Brian Jones he was copying because he got the, he got the Beatles, had the Beatles suit as well with, a, with the uh, skinny tie, which was very, uh, you know, ahead of the curve as far as that stuff goes. And then James went to London and he was sort of singing the pistols and he's, you know, hanging out with, with the bands. He had an audition for, to play drums for The Clash. Yeah, they wanted him to join, but he had to come back to Australia. So he'd been away from almost a year. So James came back to, to, to Perth going, what the hell am I doing here in this backwater? <laughs> and, um, you know, and he was forming a punk group, you know, out of the music he'd been listening to. Independently of him, we were all doing the same thing through the records we were hearing on, you know, and reading about. And, and uh Somehow we all met and, you know, th- then stuff happened. But it took to the middle of 77 for the victims to happen. But, you know, things were happening already in 76, as I say, in Birdman 74, 75, you know. So by the time Hoodoo Gurus begins, and you're just talking about a handful of years between, you know, 77 to when uh, when you guys, you know, yeah. get together. Yeah. It felt like forever at the time. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure it did. But, you know, there's a there's a noticeable difference between the punk of 1977 to the kind of. The, that power pop, you know, guitar driven music that you guys were, were doing. It's, it's always funny to me how, you know, we, we have to categorize everything. I know that for, yeah, us, yeah. for us in the United States, and I was at, in college radio at the, at the time that these, that these records were, were coming out here in the States. It was always confounding to me how many bands there were that were great college radio hits, staples of that format that could not break into a more commercial echelon. But if you listen yeah. to those songs, you know, they are as accessible as any other band in, in the world. Just, you know, Hoodoo Gurus w- would be one of them, but there were probably, you know, 50 other bands that could have been easily, you know, if, if they were, I don't, I, I don't know if it's because they were, you know, too far ahead of their time or, you know, they just, you know, we're just a few years uh, you know, shy away from getting to a, a more commercial space. But it just seemed like, like the U.S. market was a tough nut to crack for. It was. I mean, you know, as we saw, you, you mentioned Simple Minds, people like that. I mean, you know, they were going at it for years, you know, in excess, you know, did their thing. And uh, But uh, there was a band right before us called the Sunny Boys, you know, who kind of were that trailblazer in Australia, I think, you know, where they kind of were the, one of the first inner city bands that re- did have a chart hit. And, um, you know, we we kind of followed in their footsteps a little bit, like a year or so later. But um yeah, like what happened with me, I just, I, I couldn't really speak for the whole, I mean, American radio is, you know, and how it was and how it is. And, you know, it's always the big <laughs> imponderable, you know, but as far as, you know, like the Ramones, you know, why didn't they have hits? 
you know, the bands that copied them had hits, you know, the Green Day. Let's be honest, you know, that's yeah. no no more palatable than the Ramones. I mean, the Ramones are amazingly poppy and exciting and, and fun and, you know, and, and, and it just took a few years for radio to kind of be, have, be worn down their resistance, <laughs> I guess, you know. And in Australia, we, we were very lucky in Australia because we were able to rely on the live scene to get to, to make ourselves popular. And we, we, in a sense, carved out an audience for ourselves before radio got on board. We, we were already getting big crowds uh, when we released our first album. And so what would radio would do in those days, I don't know if they were the same in the States, but certainly in Australia, they, they used to ring up people and play them a random bit of music over the phone and say, what do you think of this song? <laughs> and that was their way of like polling an audience and, seeing, and, 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 and market testing the music for their playlist. And so it got to the point where we had so many fans that, that they hit a few of them, obviously, at random, and they recognised us and my voice or something and said, we like that, play that one. Yeah, and that you know we got that's how we got across. But you know, in the states, we didn't have that same uh, benefit. As I say, in Australia, we we kind of were able to kind of you know break through by it almost bulldoze our way onto the radio, which yeah. we couldn't do in the states because you know there's so many other bands. I'll just play that instead. You know, whereas in Australia, we were kind of a big name. That's actually how I started in radio, doing those kinds of phone surveys, and right, <laughs> and and I did it for for a, a good long time before I ever got a chance to you know speak in front of a microphone. But what was always true of of that process is for american audiences if they were unfamiliar with a song they automatically hated it didn't matter what it was or how good it was it just they didn't like it and it, like like a perfectly good example would be so guns and roses was a major major hit 1986 i think it was and yeah, it took yeah. it took like 8 to 9 months before anyone was willing to 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 give it a good score on those surveys. It was only after they did yeah. a video on MTV did they say, oh, my God, I love that song, and we, we would continue to test it. It's like the familiarity of music is really something that Americans you know, just can't get past. If if I don't know it, it's it can't be good. If the, the unknown is dangerous. That's what... That's what made punk so dangerous for people. There, I mean, there were families that were torn apart because their, their kid... <laughs> The kid wasn't a drug addict. He wasn't flunking out of school, but he had a punk haircut and had the Sex Pistols uh, album, and that was that was enough to almost disown a child back, you know, back then. Well, I've got to say that's kind of what we're trying to do, by the way, in punk rock. And and you know, <laughs> as I explained about us being disaffected, you know, isolated teenagers, or you know, in in Perth, that's very much something we embraced, you know. And the fact that we didn't want to relate to the culture around us, we wanted to rebel and be different and be basically shunned. Because we shunned them back, right. you know. It was, a, it was a different thing. But um, it's funny you mentioned about the, you know, people liking songs I already know. I mean, growing up in Perth, that was really a, the case. You know, it's quite a quite a conservative place. It's a very, very pleasant place. But, um, you know, uh, the thing with playing your own music, you know, which we did in punk bands, we'd write our own songs, we'd, you know, pick up instruments, learnt that we had never played two weeks earlier, and suddenly we're up on stage playing it. That's the sort of what you do it yourself thing. Well, of course, that was completely anathema to anyone else in the in the city because if the song was any good, they would have heard it on the radio by now. That's what they thought. So you could never write a new, an original song in Perth because people just thought it was if it was any good, someone would already know it. It was a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre attitude. So, so I was in bands before the victims. I, I actually played in a blues group early that was quite successful in a sort of a culty sort of blues group. And in fact, I was listening to Ramones and I joined them kind of. 
not under false pretenses, but because I love blues and I played keyboards uh, before I played guitar, but I wanted to play guitar and I was, I was excited by the Ramones and, that, and all I could talk about was punk rock and they still let me in the band because I played good <laughs> blues piano. But um, I was teaching myself guitar while I was doing it and then I, you know, left and formed the victims after that, but in the following year. But that 1976 period, you know, very often you'd play somewhere and the, the audience would sit down for your set and then when the, in between sets that the DJ played, you know, you know, that sort of early disco stuff and they'd be out, you know, cramming the dance floor. And, you know, it wasn't just disco as well. It was other music as well. You know, people just didn't believe anyone in Perth would write a, a song worth hearing because, yeah. you know, it's Perth and, you know, <laughs> It, it just did they didn't trust their own taste i guess i think maybe maybe it's just human nature then you know that uh yeah. you know, the things we don't know or the things we would better we're better off not knowing about but it's well, uh, it, well you know even even with us with our success in australia because we had success from our first album and my girl the single off that album in australia was like a top 20 hit i mean it was for us at the time was you know, momentous on you know real commercial radio charts not just you know alternative charts or whatever and um but, you know, and then we had bigger hits, you know, what's my scene was, was top three uh, in Australia, third album, you know, yep. and, and, um, you know, and the second album we had big hits as well. So like it just kept growing and we were, we were quite a mainstream act in a sense, you know, for Australia, but we got to the point where, you know, it was very obvious. We'd notice it. We'd release a new album and all the mainstream radio stations would be playing all the singles from the previous album again, <laughs> you know, they'd sort of start hammering those and they wouldn't play the new ones. And then it, Next album comes out, same thing. Like we were always one album behind as far as, you know, those songs are now really good for radio because they'd had to be broken in by people already liking them, as you explained, you know? One of the, the things that uh, that I think is really true of the band, and it's, it, you know, it, it's hard to make one great record, but it's really hard to make consistently great records as the years go on. And that is one of the things that I think the Hoodoo Gurus have done. I mean, there are strong songs on every single record for me there hasn't been a bad record yet there's always Thank something there, i mean there's always something on those records where you say there's at least you know three or four songs here that i could listen to all day long i mean you're the primary songwriter in this band and have been since the very beginning how did you come to discover that you could write great pop songs i mean is it is it uh, something that you've you've worked on is it easy for you to do is it a struggle to do tell me a, a little uh, bit about that process for you well, so it's all three of those things. I mean, you know, um, uh, you know, everyone works hard, you know, at their art if they're serious about it, and you, you know, you, you dedicate yourself to making it as good as you can, and sometimes that's, you know, requires a bit of elbow grease or whatever, you know, application. In my case, it's the lyrics. You know, take a bit more polishing and a bit more work. They that nags at you some with some sometimes. You know, a few songs I felt like I the lyrics I let get away from me and, and I kind of got stuck in something that I just should have really gotten rid of. But, you know, I'm really happy with most of them. And and lyrics are the ones, things that often take the longest time for me. But but musically, you know, a, a, snap, a, a melodic idea, a riff or whatever comes in and it excites me and it gives me a kind of real buzz. And that's the only way I can tell. It's like a gut, you know, gut feeling, a reaction I get. And, and you know, the, the endorphins, whatever, you know, <laughs> and I, I get that rush. And the only thing is if if... You can write a song with that, you know, that thrill, but it's when you come back to it and if the song, like, you know, after a few days later, if you or even the next day, if you can come back to it and you still get the same rush, then you know there's something going on with this one. Because sometimes, you know, you, you can get in the moment and you feel really excited, you know, I'm writing a great song now. This is our next hit single. I've had that <laughs> once or twice. And then it, like, listen to it and then get, you know, get in the rehearsal room and it's, it's absolute 
really doesn't work at all. It's horrible. Other songs you you kind of write, oh, this is kind of a bit of fun, you know, a bit of a bit of a bit left field for the band, but we'll give it a shot. And then something somehow it gels, you know, and it becomes sort of greater. So you you can't, you know, really predict. And I don't and I, and I gave up trying, you know, I just write the songs in front of me that I like, you know, and and I'm just lucky in the sense that I um, you know, I relate to strong melodies and and you know stuff with a bit of energy that's the thing that comes from punk rock and you know i mean i grew up in this you know 60s you know an old man now and and you know so a lot of that stuff was you know the music that expired me then still does and and that sensibility i got from you know listening to the beatles and stones and whatever it still percolates through and and um i guess that is a commercial sort of music because it's you know people you know it's 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 got flavor is what i think you know, but if I was if I was someone who wrote you know classical music or you know folk music, I mean you know that'd be just as valid. It's it, but I probably would have to anticipate having a less uh, successful career touring. I mean maybe not. Maybe I'd be like you know on circuits making a fortune as a you know in demand you know folk singer. But you know it just happens that I've done rock and roll and I've you know played in that sort of market in a sense, and um, you know I'm good at it and it's and it works for me. But it's not you know something I. I can't target the songs. I can't write them to a direction. And, you know, you write a song and you, sometimes I've written a song where I thought, who's like, for example, the song Bittersweet on our second album. When I wrote that song, it was to me like a real departure because this is a quite a serious song and it was kind of a bit more somber than anything on the first album. And, uh, you know, it was kind of driving a, a sense like turning away from what we'd done on the first album. And I thought there's no way the band will play this and to, you know, that anyone will like it. But, you know, it was, but I still had to write the song because it just was a, a song excited me. And it wanted being a great, a great song for you guys. Funny, a funny thing, it did screw us up with the first record company because there was a guy there, the a and uh, department, who said, Bittersweet's fantastic as a single. You know, it already been, there's already a single in Australia and doing well, but, but he's like going, but the chorus takes too long to, to come. It's no good for American radio. The chorus has got to happen sooner. And he's, so he goes into the studio and he completely re edited the song. Yeah. With, you know, no, and present it to us. And we're saying, no, it's shit. You know, we're not going to let you release that. And so he basically, he was going to, he was sort of staking his career that he was going to make the Huda Guru to hit and that'd be his like brownie points with his label and, you know, help him get up the ladder. And, you know, we'd kind of undercut, you know, wouldn't allow that to happen because we said, this is, this is no good. You've ruined the song. It doesn't work. He, of course, dropped us and the label dropped us because he was our kind of the person that was, you know, championing us and there was no one there to be our, our, you know, our, uh, you know, booster in the label. So we got dropped. Um, also, thanks to Lou Reed, who uh, who, who uh, put a bad word against us. <laughs> Lou, Lou, Lou Reed did? Lou Reed did, yeah. What did he say? Um, well, we toured with Lou Reed in Australia on the first album after we did the US tour and we came back and we supported Lou Reed in Australia. And um, we were really, you know, popular and people kind of hip, you know, so people really enjoyed both us and Lou. You know, and we we related very much to Lou. I'm a huge Lou Reed fan, and Velvet Underground. You can hear on the new album. There's a huge overt influence there on one of the songs. Yep. Um, we didn't have much to do with Louis. You know, Louis very famously taciturn and if not downright rude. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and we were we were. But after the tour finished, he tour, he done a tour with another band from North Carolina called the Swimming Pool Cues. Uh, uh, C-U-E-S, cues, swimming pool cues, like pool cues with swimming in front, like, like a Jeopardy answer. And um, he liked these guys for some reason. Anyway, so that, so at that time, A&M were 
um, gonna were, had a, signed a whole lot of bands up there in a flurry, and they decided they had to trim their roster. They had too many, so they had to cut all these bands. And they're saying, "Who are we gonna lose? Who the gurus of swimming pool cues?" And Louis said, "Ah, don't, don't not those guys won't make it. Get the swimming pool cues." <laughs> so he he backed them, and you know basically put the boot into us, and that was uh, yeah. that was that was loose. As assistance to our career. Meanwhile, where are the swimming pool cues today? Uh, maybe they've gone up to some to fame and fortune in other <laughs> guises, but certainly I've never heard of swimming pools. I think I think they might have had two albums. I'm not sure. Well, they're not coming up with their first album in 12 years. I can tell you that. That's uh, <laughs> they're not doing that. I know revenge, revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the new album a little bit because you did uh, you did touch on it, Chariot of the Gods. It did take 12 years to uh, to put this out, and I know there's a yeah. there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, and yeah. part of it is, uh, you know, part pandemic, but also, uh, the retirement of, uh, Mark Kingsbill, even in spite of all that, you know, what did take so long to come up with, uh, with Chariot of the Gods? Well, it was literally because Mark, um, wanted to retire and we didn't know for several years. Um, it, but he, he was knocking back concert shows and, you know, he was sort of cherry picking them all. Uh, well reward, well paid gigs and the more comfortable ones like festival shows and didn't really want to do the hard grift graft of you know playing in in pubs and you know just getting it out in amongst and really sort of working hard and sweaty and playing longer sets. He liked the festival show where you do a shorter set because you're on a big bill. <laughs> so it we just we couldn't tell what but all we just knew that he was like he was winding down the band and he was kind of you know and we were having less and less options and and he and he also was had no interest in doing a new album so you know it just was just not was just not on the uh table as something we could even contemplate he just had no interest and you know um so it was weird and it was it wasn't until we went to um i think it was south africa we all oh, that was uh, anyways there's a whole story but basically he eventually fessed up that he wanted to leave the he wanted to retire and um and we thought, well, gee, you know, we can't imagine ourselves without Mark. He'd been with the band since 1985, uh, 84, sorry, and, and he's on our second album on. And, you know, we, we'd we always kind of said if one of us left, we'd probably break up. You know, it was a way we felt. We, we, we had such a, you know, and especially because we had the break. We actually did break up for six years, as you know, in the middle, in the late 90s. We, we broke up in 1990. Well, last show was early 98. And we didn't play until uh, Magnum, Mag, uh, sorry, um, Max Shaw, we made an album there in 2004. So we had six years away. We actually broke up thinking this is never going to happen again. We kind of, you know, thought we've had a good career. Let's quit while we're ahead. But, you know, music had other ideas. There was things that happened and made sense that we'd play again. You know, we just wanted to. And so anyway, that's another, another story. But we felt very much like there was this incredible energy there between the four of us. And we didn't think we could recapture that with someone else. We weren't, we had, you know, member changes over the years and it was quite difficult. That was pretty much in our thoughts, you know. So when Mark said he wanted to leave, it was like, well, maybe the band's going to stop again. So we kind of like just played for as long and to see what would happen. And, you know, and and that took a few more years until <laughs> yeah. Mark was ready to actually stop. And then he finally did stop. And we got Neil and Nick in the band. And um, uh, and he was with the band for about uh, 18 months, something like that. Then Mark sort of repented his retirement he'd, he'd spent money on a kitchen renovation that cost more than expected <laughs> so he actually wanted some more money but also he you know he he missed touring after not doing it for a while and so he came back and we said like great you know we've got our drummer back we're back to being ourselves you know so he rejoined that was for 10 months and then he said oh you know what i really was right the first time i want to go and he left and we knew this time was forever so then we really had to decide so this is kind of like we're, we're already talking like about eight years at this point you know believe it or not 
And um, and then it was like, okay, now what are we doing? We started auditioning people again. We weren't sure Nick was the right guy after all that. And we tried it again and he was the right guy. So we got Nick back in and that was pretty much got us to be almost the beginning of uh, COVID. We, we basically, um, maybe Nick joined about a year and a bit before COVID and we were getting ready to, to start recording. And we decided we were going to do it as a series of singles and, and next thing COVID hit as well, which kind of just slowed everything right up. But but basically, that was the reason. Purely and simply, Mark left the band, and we didn't know if we should continue. Now, did Mark at least have the wherewithal to at least show you what the kitchen looked like after the after the renovations? <laughs> I, mean, I don't think I've ever seen that damn kitchen since really? then. No. I, I mean, I would think no. if, he's, if he's putting out like this, the least he could do is offer you dinner or something like that. Well, we're grateful. I mean, you know, the, the, it was it was a long, horrible process in many ways. You know, and you know, it, it kind of was. You know, for a long time, we were just really you know, not sure what we had, you know, we had a future and it was awful, you know, but then um, it was actually kind of because when Mark came back and then left again, it kind of actually put a fire in our bellies and we're like, you know what? He can't decide our fate. This is not right. You know, yeah. we, it kind of, it kind of made us a bit mad. So we said, you know what, we will, we'll get someone else and we're going to do a damn record and we're going to keep going, you know? So that, and that was it. If, who knows if Mark hadn't have come back, whether we might have, um, you know, just eventually said, you know what, let's, that's eh, not working. Let's stop. We was like, you know, a bit like the, uh, the rebound uh, romance, you know, we had Nick come in and that wasn't quite the same. We weren't right. We weren't ready for it. And it wasn't until we had Mark back again. And it was like, Oh, you know what, this, this has to end. This relationship is, is an abusive relationship. Uh, it wasn't really, <laughs> I'm just kidding, you know? Um, and so then we were ready for someone else and we were ready to actually change and not be the same band that we were with Mark. We wanted that new flavor. And that's what the new album I think is really what's great about it is that it is kind of, it's a hoodoo gurus, but it's kind of like a new energy and a new sort of vibe. And I think that's, that's true. And I would imagine that, you know, if you're writing music and still feel that you have something to say and, and Brad and Rick are still on board with that, then there's no reason not to continue in spite of who may or may not be, you know, playing the drums, it's still a great record. There are songs on here that are as good as anything else you've ever done. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 as I say, I think it was, for me, it's really important that, that, you know, I mean, it's not a solo record and never has been, you know, so, you know, I, I describe the, the band as being like a race car and uh, you know, a sports car, whatever. And, and, you know, the songs are the fuel. So the two need each other, but they're quite different entities you know and they different relationship you know and, and and if i could put that fuel in any vehicle you know whether it's you know uh so i could do it as a solo record but it wouldn't be the same and so the energy i get from being in the band the way that the band takes that fuel and turns it into something you know into, into high speed full tilt boogie <laughs> um you know that's kind of you know that is where i get my excitement and and the songs the way Nick plays drums has got a bit more swing in it and it kind of brings out a different flavor in my songwriting, which, you know, it's weird, you know, cause, cause as I explained earlier, you know, I don't predict which songs I'm going to write, but also I can't predict which songs are going to click with the band, you know, in the same way, you know, so you, you bring in an idea and it, and it, and it might not get started, you know, and it might've worked with Mark one way, but then when it's with Nick, it sounds like something else and it turns into something else. Like, you know, because songs were written, you know, from very rudimentary ideas, you know, like the first song, the first single, uh, Answered Prayers. I literally wrote the riff on the way home from re from rehearsal. Um, just to, I pulled the car over, sang it into my phone, just, the, just you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> I was thinking in my, my mind of Suicide, the, the mm. group, you know, yep. Alan Vega. 
and Marty Rev. And uh, and I was thinking like that. And so I, next day we came to rehearsal and I said, let's try this this riff. And that was basically all I had. And then I start singing a melody over it. And, you know, and I, and I got the drums to play what I thought would be kind of like a sort of like a driving sort of motor rick kind of kind of groove. And it sort of turned out different, you know, and and it had a different sort of flavour. And it, that inspired, you know, me to write something else and it turned into something else entirely and, and other songs as well. So it's the chemistry in the band that kind of energises me too. And as I say, it brings out certain characteristics in my songs and in this case that I feel are a, a different facet of my writing to what I did with Mark. You know, like you listen to Mac Shaw, it's a really brutal. Yeah, it's a real heavy record, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's our most uncompromising album in many ways. And, you know, that's we see, I, I always describe it as being our presence, you know, that Led Zeppelin's album, Presence. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. that you know right <laughs> and, and but you know at the same time underneath it all is really melodic you know there's beautiful things like you know dead sea and things like that that are really quite you know and and this is but it's just that you know that certain character and and mark ha- brings a certain character to the sound that makes the songs like this whereas nick's character makes the songs like that and i and i do see them quite you know different even though they are still my writing and you know in that same sensibility and i can't change that that's what that's how I explain it to myself anyway. But for yeah. whatever it's worth, you know, maybe I'm imagining it, you know, that it sounds different as I as much as I think it does. But um, you know, I feel it does. It's a different kind of Hoodoo Guru's album. There's no, there's no question about that. But I mean, there's some songs on it that I really, really love. My uh, my imaginary friend, I think, is a great song. I was uh, I was I supposed to care? Another good one, and I come from the future. I think those three were you know ones that really stood out for me. I just thought, wow, these are these these are classic Hoodoo Guru songs. I, I thought they were terrific. Thank you. Well, yeah, I love Brad, Brad's uh, Come From Your Future is a great song, you know, and it goes over a treat live. Um, yeah, like the songs in there, um, you know, I, I love uh, the song um, Don't Try To Save My Soul. To me, that's, you know, that's my kind of bell of John and Yoko. <laughs> I've written <laughs> the story of my life in a song. Certainly the story of my musical life. Yeah. No, actually, it's more than that. It's got more than that. It's kind of the story of my emotional life as well. But, uh, you know, like it's uh, – yeah, that, that's something I, I – on this album, I've done a little bit more than on many albums, I think, where I've been a little bit more overtly personal in some of the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, every every song is personal. It's always your perspective, and sometimes you're writing about a, sort of a global, you know, like something that's external to you, or something. Sometimes a very something that's very specific to your life, but you try to make it in a way that other people understand it. So, you know, there's always this this you know this separation between you know outside and inside is always you know moot. But in this case, I kind of a lot of the stuff's very much specific to things that have been happening to me in the last few years, and um, that's in it. Some people almost hear as a concept album for that reason, you know, because <laughs> there's it, it a certain thread in some some of the songs that connects to each other emotionally. You mentioned that you have been uh, been playing live. Uh, how's the reaction yeah. been to the to the new record? Are people again right. unfamiliar and they don't want to hear it, and then? The- that's the, the song they go to the bathroom for. Oh, uh, no, no, it's, it's, it's true. But, you know, we these songs have been had uh, been striking the chord straight away. You know, we, we've we never had a, you know, feeling of like a dead spot in the set from them. Um, obviously, we do have a problem in Australia because we are such a well-known band that there are certain songs that have become, you know, hit singles and part of people's lives where there's a very broad audience that, you know, uh, many of them would only know, say, you know, six songs, <laughs> but those songs they really want to hear. So... You know, we know that, but, um, you know, it's, as I say, the songs work in, in terms of um, the way we operate as a band. They just sound like great Hoodoo Guru songs yeah. and we play them and they don't, and, you know, the energy doesn't flag at all. 
no one's ever going to be happy to hear a new song. We, you know, it's a fact of life. <laughs> In terms of like, you know, when they paid a lot of money to see a show and it's an hour and a half, they want to hear everything they ever wanted to hear because they probably won't see you for two or three or maybe ever again. So they want to hear all the songs they like, you know, none of the other ones. There have been a couple of times I've been at a show and the uh, the artist or band will say, we're going to play our new album in its entirety. I'm like, oh, Jesus, what, what the hell did I pay for? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've done it myself. I saw Bob Dylan um, at Jazz Fest in New, in, in New Orleans, you know, and he he played a few songs. And the third song, I think, was uh, Stuck Inside a Mobile, was one of my favourite songs of his with the Memphis Blues again, you know, that song. And um, yeah. and then um, then he said, and now I'm going to play this one. And it's from his new album. And I'm like, eh, I'm not sure about this one. And it wasn't because... <laughs> I don't think it was because I was, you know, being uh, prejudiced. I just don't think that song was very good. I mean, he's written some great songs, you know, on his every album, you know, but there's been some albums that actually were a bit low, you know, overall a bit tepid, you know, and and I think it was this is one of those ones. It was uh, anyway. So I I went off to see someone else that you know that time, which is pretty <laughs> poor. But I've I've seen Dylan again, and it was a brilliant concert. It was you know a lot of new songs. We played in Sydney um, a couple of years ago, a few years ago. And he, um, luckily, he play, he did a, a little. There was he had a spare night when he was in Sydney, and he said, "Oh, you know what? Let's put on a show." And he he booked a small theater, a bit like the Beacon in New York. Oh wow! So it's like that size, yeah, three thousand seater. And I, you know, got tickets for that amazingly. And you know, it was a fantastic show. And you know, I, I, he could have played five hours. I would have been you know totally happy. <laughs> it was that good. Are, are you guys? Is there any talk or any discussion about you know taking a, like a, a coming to the states for a period yep. of time? When when, when yes do you expect yes. that? Yes, yes, uh, early next year. We are uh, we're we're um, discussing dates right now. We're looking at um, probably May. So yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, like your spring, I guess. And um, yeah, that's our plan. We're going to go to Brazil first, we hope, and then to the states. And uh, yeah, that's and then then to Europe. Um, like we'll probably come back for a month to Australia or, or, or two and then go to Europe at the end of this, at the end of summer. Yeah. So that's the plan. Well, I, I hope I get a chance to, to see you guys again. It'd be a great, a great chance to see you for a second time. Well, after, you know, unfortunately having to cancel through COVID, you know, we canceled three times. Uh, you know, the, uh, like yeah, there were two delays and then the third time we just canceled, you know, um, we should have canceled the first time. Really. It was, a, it was horrible the way it happened. You know, uh, our, our um, agent said, look, you know, this will be over in a couple of months. Just, you know, don't, don't cancel a tour. <laughs> you know? Just postpone it. So we yeah. did that, had to postpone it again. And, and then the third time was like, postpone it. Come on, postpone it. Like, no, we can't. We just got to <laughs> cancel. It's not fair, you know? Yeah. So the third time we had to cancel it. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait to see you when you do come around. The, uh, the name of the album is uh, Chariots of the Gods. It is a, it's a really, really strong record. And Dave, it's, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. So thank you so much for, for taking the time today. Thank you, Baxi. Look forward to seeing you guys soon. Very good. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye-bye now. Again, the name of the new record is Chariot of the Gods from the Hoodoo Gurus. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like it, share it, tell all your friends about it, give it a good review, too. You can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.